I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Jeremy S. Adams. That's right. He's back. And uh, just as a note, he's a high school and university teacher in Bakersfield, California. He's a prolific writer, the author of four books, the most recent, Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. And he also submits articles for uh, online journals like Quillet and is a column writer for the dailywire.com. So cool. What an awesome conversation we're going to have today about the current status of uh, education in America and uh, what we can do about it. Uh, you're just going to love this stuff. Great, great energy. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it'd be so cool. Could you share this with a friend, a family member, a colleague? Yeah. Say, hey, you ought to listen to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. That would be so awesome if you did that. Thanks so much and uh, enjoy the show. The intro and outro were created and performed by Brian K. Buffington. You can find more about Brian at briankbuffington.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for his newsletter. Thanks, Brian. Cool, huh? It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Jeremy S. Adams is a high school and university teacher living in Bakersfield, California. He and his writing have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, C-SPAN, the Sacramento Bee, and numerous national education podcasts, as well as some other cool stuff I'm going to tell you about at the end here. Mr. Adams has won numerous accolades for his teaching and writing efforts, including the 2014 California State Teacher of the Year Award, Daughters of the American Revolution. The 2012 Kern County Teacher of the Year Award was a 2013 semifinalist for the California Department of Education's California Teacher of the Year Award and was a finalist in 2014 for the Carlston Family Foundation. Foundation National Teacher Award. He was recognized in 2014 by the California State Senate for his achievements in education. He was a 2018 California State University Bakersfield, or CSUB, Hall of Fame inductee, the first classroom teacher ever inducted in the history of the school. Jeremy received his bachelor's degree in politics from Washington and Lee University and his master's degree in education curriculum instruction from California State University, Bakersfield, where he was named the outstanding student in the School of Education. He is also an education speaker and has spoken to large education groups and conferences across the country. In addition, Jeremy is the author of Full Classrooms, Empty Selves, The Secrets of Timeless Teachers, Riding the Wave, Teacher Strategies for Navigating Change and Strengthening Key Relationships, and Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. By the way, Jeremy previously appeared on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 episodes 123, 103, 300, and 399 and now here we are and we're over 500 and so we're kind of which is really cool and uh, so we're gonna have him um so we're in the early 500s which is very nice and i appreciate him supporting the podcast like this and i appreciate all the stuff he writes he does an awesome job jeremy is also now a weekly columnist for the dailywire.com uh, to give you an idea two of his recent articles are we must make teaching an attractive profession again and how progressive have ruined school culture and created a mass teacher exodus jeremy it's awesome to talk to you again thanks for joining me and say hi to everyone Hello, thank you so much for having me on. I gotta say, my biography is now so long, it's it's exhausting just to hear the biography, much less live it. So thank you so much for having me on again. 
Well, it's cool. You've done a lot of stuff and it's great to have you back. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you've written a lot of really neat stuff, but before we go any further, the last time we talked, we were talking about hollowed out, uh, warning about America's next generation, which is, um, uh, was, which is this fourth book that you wrote. And, um, it was an Amazon best-selling book. I mean, you had some, um, really strong success with it. And, uh, I believe that, you know, before it had a hardback run, now it's getting ready to be released as a paperback, which is cool. Congrats to you that uh, you've had a nice run. Could you share a little bit about the premise of Hollowed Out? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, I, I do want to remind you that we actually uh, taped a podcast for Hollowed Out, I think before it even came out. Um, at the time, I was really, really nervous about it. It's my first quote unquote popular book. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be a professional development book. It was it was meant to be a, a book of kind of popular commentary about our schools and our children. Um, and it it did fabulously well. Um, it, it, like you said, it was a an Amazon bestselling book, not not in a little subcategory, but like overall on Amazon uh, for I think two or three days uh, at one point. Uh, and and it's done very well. The paperback just came out uh, about two weeks ago, and it, it's also doing very very well now. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a little shocked at, at how many copies it sold and how well it's done and how much attention it, it, it's received. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for helping me start the momentum uh, of that. Uh, Steve, you definitely had a lot to do with it. But Hollowed Out uh, was, I would call it my magnum opus. It was really kind of the book that I felt like I had been meant to write uh, as a teacher and an educator. Uh, and essentially it was uh, an argument and a kind of a calling. Uh, saying to the, the, the kind of non-teachers of America, look, we have a profound and colossal problem with the young people who are now growing up. This is not just an old man, a curmudgeon, a crank howling into the wind, get off my lawn, you youngins are going to hell in a handbasket. Um, it, it was the fact that there was something uniquely worrisome about our young people. And it and the thing is, is when you've taught as long as I have, Steve, I'm I'm now in year 25, which I had some student last year say, well, that year, that, that's like a quarter of a century. I don't know why you say it. I mean, that sounds worse. A quarter of a century sounds a lot worse than 25 years. But when you when you teach for 25 years, though, you, you notice when there's kind of a sudden pivot, um, a sudden change uh, in, in the way our our students are acting, the way they're thinking, their worldview, their value system. And right around 2013, 2014, things were really starting to get off track with our young people. Uh, you know, the, the one thing I say to any, any critic, and I don't mean like, you know, people who are mean because people are mean, there's somebody who has a real criticism is you know, the, the criticism is, you know, every generation thinks the next one is, is, is off track. But I would say to you is that the young people who are in our classrooms today uh, are the most unhappy generation in American history. Uh, when you look at their mental state, when you look at their loneliness, when you look at the levels of self-harm, when you look at the levels of isolation and suicide, um, and the word that we hear that is omnipresent and ubiquitous today is anxiety. Uh, our young people are anxious all the time. The New York Times just did an article in the last few months about how, you know, emergency rooms are overwhelmed with teenage girls who just uh, don't know what to, you know, they feel like they're on the verge of, of doing something bad. And these ER doctors don't know exactly what to make of it. So there is something uniquely worrisome about our young people and their unhappiness. Um, and I, the, the book is an argument and an explanation about why that's happening. Uh, and what I'm trying to argue is that, you know, the, the things that we typically attach to in life, they give it purpose and meaning. Uh, things like uh, family, things like friendship, things like faith, 
things like patriotism, things like learning. Um, these are kind of the connective tissue between the human soul and, 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 and higher meaning and purpose. And our young people uh, don't have those kinds of connections today. They're literally being hollowed out uh, of the connective tissue uh, that really brings us joy and happiness uh, as creatures on this wonderful planet. And, and I explore that and explain it uh, and really try and get uh, people who are not teachers to understand what's happening and why. That's awesome. And, and it's, I've read it. It's, it's a great book. It makes those points. And it, it really explains a, a lot about, I mean, we have this ability to be connected all over the world, yet we're lonely. Yeah. And not only lonely, but we isolate ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things that you see happening is with young people, you know, people think sometimes that loneliness means that there's nobody around you, but that's not true. Loneliness is when you feel like you're not participating in meaningful activities with other people. So, I mean, I see this all the time. And one of the things in some of the, some of the interviews I've done for All Out, you know, some of the hosts are shocked by this, and yet teachers understand it. Uh, you know, you will go to a teenage gathering, like a party or something, a birthday party, and you walk in to pick up your child or something, and it's silent because everybody's sitting around on their phone staring at it. Uh, you know, the, that's what's creating loneliness. When you, uh, it used to be earlier in my career, if you, you know, you ended a high school classroom, you know, a minute or two early and you said, okay, kids, you guys can just talk for a minute. They would just erupt, they put their notebooks away and just, blah, 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 you know, chatter and gossip and flirt and whatever. Now, when you say, okay, there's two minutes left, you know, take it easy, silence. Nobody talks, nobody engages nobody tries to gossip or anything like that. Just take out their phones and they start to scroll and that's it. And enough of that. And you feel lonely. Yeah, that would be, uh, that really wouldn't make it feel that way. You know, it's, it's funny. Cause like uh, I went to the movies this weekend and uh, um, you know, I, some young couple, they sat, but it was funny. It's one of those things where you can choose your seats ahead of time. And, uh, and uh, I on purpose found some, a good seat because I was by myself. It was uh, a neat uh, weekend. They had everything was three dollars, all the tickets, you know. And it's like, ah, oh, cool. So I, I saw a really current, up to date movie. I saw Jaws on IMAX. Oh wow, <laughs> which is awesome and an yeah. IMAX. But yeah. what was funny was the this young couple. They buy the two seats between myself and the next couple over, and they plop down in there. And they, if this young man was trying to impress her. It just, all I know is that she spent like most of the time on her phone. She's looking at the phone and just whatever she was doing over there. And it's like, that's a strange date right there. Cause he was, <laughs> I, well, we see this with, we see this with families too, you know, families, you know, and I, I had to fight my own family on this. You go out to dinner uh, and everyone wants to take out their phone instead of sitting there and talking and, and catching up on their day. I mean, it, it really, I mean, I, I would tell you that kind of the, you know, kind of this kind of the, the totem that stands between kind of the old world and the new is the advent of these phones that demand, they suck all of our attention. Um, and I would say creativity and um, our ability to communicate. I, one of the things I've noticed with our kids lately, Steve, is they can't, they're not very good at conversations. So they don't like to meet you. Like they don't look you in the eye. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say to a student when they walk in, good morning, they don't reply. They don't even respond. It's like, I'm not even there. And what I want to say is, that's rude. You're being rude. Stop being rude. I'm being nice to you. When I say good morning, you say hello, Mr. Adams. How are you? That's what I want to say. Uh, sometimes I'm like, and I'll try to give good morning. And sometimes you know, a second time, and then they'll say, oh, hello. You know, but like, you know, it's it just, it is, it is very, very frustrating because they just don't, they don't know social norms. They don't know how to communicate. 
they don't know how to deal with other people. And it's, uh, and again, that's, that's an important and enriching part of the, of, of the human experience is, is knowing how to engage with one another. And, and it's as a teacher, you know, if you can't get kids to look you in the eye, if you can't get them to know that they're supposed to somehow respond to the stimuli that you're giving them, it's really hard to communicate education through that stimulation. That's so powerful what you're talking about, because it, it really is. I mean, it's, you know, it's, you think about what a stand up comedian does um, and they have to be able to read the audience and so forth and stuff like this. It, it's really not that far from what a teacher does. You, you know, when you're working with the kids and you have to be able to read who's getting and who's not getting. And if you're not getting nothing but like children of the corn type responses. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Ooh, okay. You know, well, I mean, it, you know, it's funny you say that because I, you know, you kind of have you know, and anybody who's listening to this podcast who's who's a veteran teacher, you know, you kind of have your like, you know, your 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 st- you know, the stories that are funny that you can tell that you, the kids always laugh at, right? You kind of have your tried and true, decades old, you know, shtick. And I've noticed for the last year or two, they don't work. The kids don't laugh. They don't find it funny. Uh, and I'm like, well, have I, have I stopped being funny? Um, maybe a little, maybe I'm not as funny as I was when I was 35. Um, but, but I think that like what they find to be funny, like, you know, they'll, they'll try and show me a meme on their phone and like, I won't get it. I'm like, I don't understand that. Like, like why is that funny? And I, and I just think that there gets to be this kind of chasm separating the two sometimes. And it's, I wish it wasn't the case, but like people warned me. I remember, you know, when I was younger, people were like, when you get to your fifties and you've raised children and you've had a career for 30 years, you've been married for three decades and you've maybe gone through sicknesses and you've buried your parents and had all these, you know, soulful, gut-wrenching, real experiences. It's hard for you to relate to a 14-year-old, you know, they're like they're, they're, their level of experience and understanding is so different. It can be hard to relate. And I thought, no, I will always be able to make that connection. And I, and I hope that I do. Um, but, but it is different. There's no question about, it. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all this morning. Oh, you're making perfect sense. Cause that's one of those things that you just, uh, just as a note, someone who lives off references, I don't know if you noticed, I've already made a few of them to older, uh, um, pop culture and, uh, you know, oh. there's so many great pop culture references that, uh, now have no meaning to many oh. and they have no idea. What, I mean, like in the last few weeks, like, you know, like I mentioned magic Johnson, they have no idea who magic Johnson is. Uh, you know, they kind of know who Britney Spears is because of the free Britney movement, you know, right. uh, you know, but, but, but like, you know, but there's just weird things, Steve, like, it, you know, I know we're kind of going in a direction where I didn't mean to go, but like, so, like little things I've noticed, like, um, well, two big ones. Number one is they've admitted that they don't like to really watch movies all that much because they don't have the attention span for it, gotcha. which, I, I, you know, movies are such a, I, I love movies. I mean, they're such a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a source and origin of joy in, in life or movies. And I can't imagine, you know, you can't, you don't have the attention span for it. But the other thing that really, you know, kind of upsets me a little bit um, when they talk about kind of the differences is that a lot of them uh, will admit that they, you know, they, 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 they don't read at all. I mean, it's just, they just, they, they, they say they can't focus on it and it's just nothing that they, like they have trouble understanding. So yeah, kind of the literacy, the lack of attention, um, you know, all of that is something that really kind of worries me a lot. I write about a bit of it in the book, actually, especially about the reading. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, and a big part of what we're talking about <laughs> so fits and especially coming back to your, your book is that, you know, it's a lot of the educational professionals that are that are sticking around, that are staying, that aren't running, running away, um, are, are really trying to 
deal with this. And uh, you're kind of, you're hitting the nail on the head with all this stuff. Cause they're like, they're talking to, to young people who are like, just really not on this. I mean, I, I always, I was a high school teacher and all my administration was all through high school and, and uh, as opposed to elementary. And, you know, one of the things that you really kind of, you know, if you really doing what you need to do, you're connecting with the kids, but if they're putting up walls that stop you from connecting, you know, it's, uh, it makes it very rough. Well, well, and it's like, you know, one of the things that like really shocked me in the last year, my, my, you know, I, I, my best friend in the world is a teacher I teach with too. And we've noticed the same thing is that like it used, you know, it's one thing like if you get caught doing something and you know, you shouldn't do it. Right. I go, okay. Yeah. You caught me. I was cheating on a test or, you know, I was, I was passing notes in a class or whatever. Like, but what's weird now is that the students will straight up say, I should be able to be on my phone in the middle of class. Like I should be able to have the earbuds in. You're like, what do you mean? You should be able to, you're supposed to be paying attention to me. Yeah. But I, you know, I should be able to have my phone too. Why, why, why can't I have my phone? You know, because to them, I don't know if you saw this, but there was an article, I think in the guardian over in Europe where the, our, our friends at Netflix noticed that on a lot of teenage shows, all the subtitles were being used and they were like, Oh, this is awesome. The teenagers are reading now. No, 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 no. What they realized is that the kids wanted to be on their phones as the show was running and they just wanted to look quickly at the screen, read the dialogue so they didn't miss out and go right back to their phones. Right. That's and cool. so like you have that same kind of urge and desire in the classroom. They, they, they want to kind of be on their phones and kind of vaguely paying attention. Um, they have their earbuds in and, it, and it's weird. You know, you almost have to, it used to be like, put your phone away. They're like, okay, I understand. Now it's like, well, why? Why do I need to put my phone away? Why do I need to take this out of my ear? And of course, I'm like, because I want your attention 100%. I'm greedy. That's my new expression. I'm greedy for your attention. You're not going to learn about the Federalist Anti-Federalist debate. You're not going to understand the unitary theory of the executive. You're not going to understand any of these important concepts uh, if, if you are perpetually, manically, unendingly, ubiquitously distracted. So put your phone away and pay attention. Um, and that's kind of, that's my new expression. I'm greedy for your attention. That's why, kiddos. That's why. I love, first of all, I hate that you have to say that, but I love what you're saying because that's uh, good stuff. Yeah, I'm a huge baseball fan. I was at a game uh, this last week and, uh, you know, I'm looking around me and it's it's literally because I'm getting all into it. I, you know, I get reminded by uh, my wife and uh, others that uh, are in my family that uh, the uh, Braves don't pay me, nor uh, do they care about my real opinion from the stands, nor can they hear me. But I still express my opinions from the stands. But when you look around, most of most of the young people are on their phones. And it's like, why are you here? And if you look over their shoulder at what they're texting each other, it must be really important, right? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What are you doing? Nothing. You know, it's like, what the, this is what you're, you know, you don't even know that it's ha what's going on in the game. Anyway, it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> it's right on the same planet. So this, this is wild. And what you're talking about has a lot to do with, I mean, there, there's just such a different, um, attitude about this. You know, when I was an assistant principal, I spent a lot of my time I was in a school where, you know, there's no, you weren't allowed to text, you weren't allowed to use your phones and stuff like this. And uh, it's funny, I spent a lot of time making sure that uh, enforce that rule. Um, boy, it'd be like a full time job and a half to, oh. <laughs> today if they did that. Well, you know, this is one of the, this is, a, though, this is, I just, I just finished. Uh, I was really excited to do this. Uh, at the Daily Wire, they asked me to do a series, you know, five ideas to fix American education. Um, and, 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 you know, what I'll say is kind of the good news is I do think that teachers, even the young teachers, 
are kind of are coming to the conclusion that we've got to take care of the phones. So like, you know, you've got, you've got to put them away during class. We, you know, this idea that you can kind of somehow manage, like, I think a lot of people believe, well, you can use them as a, you can use them. They can be your ally, you know, don't be a fuddy-duddy, you know, somehow, you know, integrate them into curriculum. And I think most of us are now the opinion, no, they've got to go away. Like just put them in your backpack, turn them off. If, if it's ever an emergency, absolutely. You have it, whatever. Uh, but but I, I do think we, I do think there's a consensus that they have to go away. They have to go away. Uh, I mean, and, and again, it's not that they're not going to hurt hurt you. I mean, one of the other things I've noticed, of course, is that it takes forever for them to do homework. Forever, um, and they and they, and their reading scores. I mean, their 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 literacy levels are at all time lows. That's another article I wrote in, in the series of how to fix education is, you know, our children are so far behind in the literacy now. Um, I mean, you want to talk about a crisis that nobody's writing or talking much about, and yet it is a great predictor for future educational attainment, uh, incarceration and income levels. You know, kids who can't read by the time they're in the third grade, that trajectory almost never looks good. Uh, and it's something we don't talk about all that often. That's so powerful. I read read that article and and now it's cool to know that that's what the, that's a series because I, I was reading each of the articles because I was like, boy, we yeah. could we could do a separate show on almost every one of these articles. So, um, and don't yeah. worry, him. <laughs> but uh, but now I, I keep waiting. I keep waiting. I keep waiting for all these famous people, the Daily Wire, to have me on their show. It hasn't happened yet. I don't know what's going on. Oh man, what's what are they waiting for, man? I don't know. I don't know. I keep waiting. <laughs> the because uh, you've written some some awesome stuff there. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, w- one of those that, uh, we gotta, we gotta talk about while we got some time is that, uh, you know, one of your articles is we must make teaching an attractive profession again. And I was wondering, uh, what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. I've read your article and, and let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I think this is you know, a, a kind of an, an extension of the fact that, you know, that there are a lot of people who are leaving the profession today. Um, but I think really the gold standard, the gold standard of really kind of the, 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 the disease of the profession is that you, you have the public which says, you know, I admire teachers, but I don't want my kid doing it. Um, you know, and, and I think what's interesting is I, I think most people think that when teachers are angry or upset, you know, they're like, well, we don't, you know, we don't get paid enough. Our pension isn't enough. Um, and I think, you know, I think in, like in California, I think we're actually, we do pretty well. Uh, I think there's some states where it's criminal, right? So I don't think, you know, how low they get paid. So I don't think you can make a broad nationwide statement about things like that. What teachers are frustrated now are working conditions. Um, I, w- I was, you know, I-, I totally relate to those people in Ohio who went on strike because they don't have air conditioning. Um, and, you know, we're talking about student behavior uh, and the fact that I think, you know, when you ask teachers, why are you frustrated? The number one thing you hear is, is essentially just our plates are so piled up with things to do. Um, and every single fail, uh, every single failure of society seems to kind of be, you know, rolled up and put into our plates at school. Um, you know, we're supposed to be counselors now. We're supposed to be therapists. We're supposed to be friends. We're supposed to be parents. We're supposed to provide meals. We're supposed to provide counseling. We're supposed to do all of this stuff now. Um, and of course, you know, if we can at schools, let's do it. I mean, I mean, I, where else are we going to? It makes sense. Um, but, but I do think that it, it adds to this sense that, you know, our students are so overwhelmed. Um, there are, there's so much uh, anxiety and poverty and violence in their backgrounds for many of them. 
um, that, uh, that, that, you know, education becomes almost the third or fourth thing we do. And most of us didn't go into the classroom to do that. We went into the classroom because we, we believe in the power and the potential and the magic of the classroom. We believe in its transformative effect. Uh, we love a subject or we like to be around, you know, young people. I mean, whatever the reason we, we went in, this was not it. Um, and of course, you know, one of the things I like to argue in my, in my articles and some of my speeches is I want the public to understand that all of these anxieties and these concerns that teachers have, these were around before COVID, okay? COVID didn't cause this stuff. COVID punctuated it. COVID accelerated and amplified it and put an exclamation point on it, right? But these things were there beforehand. Um, but but I, I think that kind of, that, that kind of poll that says, you know, we, we still admire our schools overall, um, but we, we don't want our own children to do it, really shows you that the public is starting to understand how hard it is uh, to, to teach. And, and like I said, it's more about working conditions and the behavior of the students than it is things like pay. That's so powerful what you're talking about because it becomes so apparent. And, and the more that, because you're, you're right. I mean, I got to tell you, though, know, when I was a teacher, yeah, there was, you had to spend time with kids, talking with them. You were, you know, I, one of the reasons why I became a teacher was because I wanted to make history fun because for me, history was fun, but my classes were not. And uh, they were the exact opposite of fun and, and interesting and so forth. And so my goal was to, to try and make it fun. Well, when I became a teacher, then I discovered that there's so much more to do. But today there's a the thought that we're going to like solve all their problems as a classroom teacher and everything from poverty to whatever the issue is. And that we're, we're supposed to understand that uh, these, you know, whatever is happening in their life stops them from being able to do what they should. Like, you know, I've, I've heard some uh, podcasts I've listened to where the teachers have talked about how, um, you know, there's policies in the school that uh, stop them from being able to, you know, e even just enforce, like you were talking about the stuff with the cell phone, you know, the idea that, no, it's my time now. Well, I disagree with you, you know, type of thing. Um, anyway. Yeah, well, no, and just to kind of to further that point, that's a great point. Um, and this is, this is kind of what my, my last, my fifth article in the series, which I just, I just submitted it. So it'll be published this week, I hope. It, you know, is, is a recognition, that, and it's an unhappy recognition. It's nothing that I celebrate, and I wish it weren't true. But I th think at a certain point, we do have to, as educators, as teachers, as classroom romantics, whatever you want to call us, I do think at some point it's healthy to assume a posture of humility and to just look at the data and admit that at the end of the day, most of the things that decide whether or not a student succeeds or not really happens before they get to the classroom. Um, you know, when you, I, I remember reading a statistic that said from the age of five to 18, a student only spends 9% of their time at school. The other 91% is at home or, 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 or somewhere else. And so it's really hard to say that that 9% decides everything. I mean, we know that a lot of the things that help a young person succeed, things like reading to them when they are an infant, right? Talking to them when they are an infant, having meals. I, I write about that in Hollowed Out a lot. That's gotten a lot of publicity um, a lot of people were not aware about the death of the family meal, that a lot of families, even upper middle class families uh, that have the means and the time don't eat together anymore. Um, creating a college going culture, having books in the home, um, you know, having uh, expectations, checking in on homework, talking to teachers, all these things that make a difference uh, are not things happening at school. They're happening before somebody gets to school. It's the culture that you come from. It's the family that you come from. It's the resources that a family provides for tutoring or whatever. If you're not doing well, 
Um, a lot of these things are things that, that teachers can't control. So I think at certain at a certain point, uh, believing that we're going to be able to, you know, kind of stand in their lives as these mighty correctives that can, you know, override uh, a violent background or, um, you know, uh, children who are dealing with extreme poverty and mental health issues, by all means, you know, we should try our best. I mean, our absolute best to help these children. And I'm proud that our profession tries to do it. But the idea that we can overcome all of that single-handedly and that we're just one, you know, pedagogic strategy away from doing it, I, I think is folly. Uh, and I think if we assume a posture of humility, it helps us to kind of pinpoint what we can and cannot fix. You know, that's <laughs> very much so. I, I, you know, when you, when you think about why most people went into teaching, um, and I'm not talking about people who kind of stumbled into it and like it or whatever, and I'm not talking about the ones who should have chosen something else. <laughs> right. Uh, but I'm, but I'm talking about our colleagues who, you know, they, they spend the time, they do this, they do that. They, they take their weekends, their summers, their, their winter holidays, you know, you know, whatever they do um, is all focused on trying to do things better and working with the kids and stuff like this. But then also on top of that, they're supposed to be held responsible for every aspect of the kid's life, whether they do well or not, you know, the, the idea that they should be doing better. And in this, I think that just, I mean, I think it's crazy considering that's not really what you have in your hands, the tool that you have, the, the, the work that comes out of that person happens because they care about helping the kids succeed, not because now you've turned them into a pseudo, um, you know, child specialist in child psychology or something like this. And Right. Exactly. I mean, I, I think sometimes, you know, we're asking teachers to be counselors, you know, we're not trained for that. Uh, I think sometimes you're asking us to be intervention specialists. Well, we're not really trained for that. Uh, and then sometimes you're kind of asking us to be kind of a friend and an act in loco parentis. And, and frankly, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, and, and so I, I think it, it's kind of asking us to kind of be a jack of all, all trades. Um, and, 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 you know, I think somebody who said it well said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if teachers just taught? Um, and it would be nice. Now we don't live in that world and I don't think we're going to go back to it. Um, but, but it would be, it would be kind of nice to a certain degree. It really would be. And that's, it's one of those things that, you know, you think about uh, what so many of them do and it's, uh, um, it's crazy. I I've got to say this because what we're talking about, let's go. You also write for, a, a online, I think it's online entity that has its own podcast stuff called Quillet, something like that. It is. I, I, Quillet. Yeah. I think it's called, yeah. Quillet, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you recently had an article. Uh, my late father was a great teacher. He wouldn't last a week in the modern classroom. And um, one of the things that's really, you know, one of the things that you have that's cool is that you actually taught in the same school where your father taught. And actually you went to school there too, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Bakersfield high school. I, you know, my, my dad taught there for 30 years. I was there as a student. And then uh, after four years of college, I came right back as a teacher. So really to a certain degree, 29 out of the last 33 years of my life, I've been there every day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And what's really cool is a story you told it in the past where uh, um, if someone wanted to get the correct uh, John Adams um, in the uh, um, John Adams, <laughs> I'm thinking history here, Jeremy Adams. Right. Um, the, so the, the, the correct Mr. Adams, there we go. That's the the story I'm going for. Um, they referred to you as the uh, young one or uh, how did they refer to you? <laughs> well, yeah, they, they would, you know, it kind of for a little, for like two years, we had students in common. He taught English. I taught world history. 
And so, you know, they called me young Adams or baby Adams behind my back, but my dad didn't like that because then he became old Adams. Uh, <laughs> so he, didn't, he didn't particularly like that at all. Sorry, I had to get to tell that story. That's awesome. So, so why do you think that, uh, although we've kind of talked down that path a little bit, uh, why do you think he wouldn't last a week in a modern classroom? You know, my dad was one of the best teachers in the history of this county, uh, but he was very what we would nowadays call old school, you know, and he brought a seriousness um, and a standard to the classroom uh, that you're not really allowed to bring anymore, if I'm being perfectly frank with you. Um, I mean, there was no chewing of gum. You took your hat off. You don't eat in my class. And and he, you know, he had a very different view of things. Like nowadays, like the best example I can, I can give you is, let's say a student is late to class every day, right? Um, you know, in, in my generation nowadays, I had a kid like this. He was very bright. He's like, you know what? Hey, I, you know, my mom's a single mom. Uh, she has to leave early for work. I have to take my sister to school every day. And so I'm going to be 25 minutes late to your class every single day, every single day. And of course, you know, my view was, you know, I really wish this wasn't the case. I think you and your mom need to try and find a different way because like you, should, you shouldn't be missing this much class every day. Um, but he never did anything about it and he was always late and that's the way it was. And, you know, nowadays it's like, well, you need to be empathetic. You need to be understanding. Uh, you really, really need to, you know, don't, don't, don't punish them. And, and that's, that is what I do. I don't, you know, I, I just kind of gently suggest we find something else. But if they don't, they don't. My dad would be like, no. No, 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 no. You find a way. You be here on time. It's disrespectful to be late to my class. You have a job. It's to be here on time. You wouldn't do this in a, in a, in a job. You should learn your lesson now. And my dad would not tolerate it. It just would not be allowed. If he had to get a counselor involved, he would do it. And so he had like a very different view of things. Um, you know, I mean, and not just, I mean, he had really high expectations. I mean, and, you know, and he didn't apologize for it. Um, and he didn't, you know, even though he was entertaining sometimes, he was not flashy. Uh, and, and he didn't, you know, he thought that education could kind of sell itself. Um, and, and so, you know, he, were, he was a guy who believed that, you know, if you say it's hard, he would say good. Right. I mean, it's not it's not supposed to be easy. Um, and, and, you know, his view would be that the things in life that are worth doing, like the things that really make life special and joyful and substantive are things that require your diligence and your time and your dedication and your focus. Teachers who make things easy, nobody remembers their name in the past. Nobody comes back to say you changed my life. Why? Because you didn't, because everything was easy. You made it it hard you put in hurdles but you helped me to overcome those hurdles that's somebody whose life you change and i don't remember if i put this in my essay uh maybe i put this in, in a book at some point or maybe it was in the essay but i remember growing up this is before facebook or cell phones or anything i remember we would get around christmas time there would always be the, a knock at a door and invariably there would be somebody in their 20s or in their 30s standing there asking for my dad and my dad would come to the front door and then they would, you know, oh, hey, how are you? And they would talk for like 10 or 15 minutes. And it was a former student from 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago. And they just wanted to stop by and, and say to my dad, thank you for, for being a great teacher. Thank you for changing my life. I don't know if you know you did, but you did. I want you to know that. Um, and we don't do that anymore. Um, you know, we're going to have a whole generation of teachers who were kind of cool, kind of kind of trendy, kind of neat, you know, kind of edgy. But I don't know how much we're changing lives because we're not asking much out of our students. Um, and the other thing is, is, I mean, 
just like the language. And, and I know, you know, a lot of the other teachers are like, well, that's just how they talk and you have to put up with it. Now, my view of this is that like, if students aren't being fed at home, we feed them at school, right? Well, if, they're, if we're not modeling good behavior at home and how to work hard and how to behave and how to treat one another, if we're not doing that at home, then why don't we extend that to school too? Hey, you don't talk like that here. You don't use that language. Uh, when I say good morning, you say good morning back. Um, these are empowering habits that that young people are going to need. And I, you know, my father, I mean, the first time some kid throws an F-bomb in the, in, in the hallway, my dad would, he would go apoplectic. Um, you know, he would be like one of those characters in one of the Pixar movies where their head explodes and kind of rage, like, what? You know, I mean, he, he, could, he would be utterly, utterly shocked. You know, I mean, sometimes you see kids who get their lunches and they throw it against the wall just because they can. You know, you have kids who, who, you know, use really, you know, verbally attack a, a teacher. They're back in the classroom the next day. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make it. He, he would not be able to function. I mean, and, and that's not even talking, Steve, about all the kind of teaching things. I mean, my dad, my dad, I was just mentioning this in my class the other day. My dad taught Socratically. So like you couldn't hide. He would ask you questions. And if you said something silly or asinine, he would call you on it. He'd be like, why do you think that? Or where are you getting that from? Or, or that's not true. Nowadays, oh man, you would be written up. You know, you're attacking my child. You're embarrassing my child. You're, 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 you're isolating my child. Um, you're shaming. That's the word. You're shaming my child. Um, I mean, my dad just, he would, he would not do well uh, in 2022. Um, and I wrote that about, you know, it, it's, I'm glad that you liked that piece. I, I got a lot of feedback. Um, that, that piece was part of my grieving process, uh, of losing my dad. Uh, we're coming up on the anniversary of his death next week. Um, so, you know, I was thinking a lot about my dad, obviously. Um, and it kind of culminated in that, in that kind of essay. Um, why my dad wouldn't last in a modern classroom. But um, thank you for that. It meant, meant a lot to me. I put, a, I, I put my heart and soul into that essay. You could really tell. And it, uh, um, uh, sorry for the passing of your father. It sounds like he was an awesome teacher and a, and a, a great parent to have. We had, uh, and it's some of the points that you make though. I just, I never met your father, but I can tell you that it's, it really tells a tale of what's happened a lot of us schools and such, because you have, uh, especially where, uh, um, for some reason, some, and <laughs> this is sad because you're talking to someone who went to schools to make change, or right? I was marked as a principal. I marketed myself to do that. And a big part of that was that a lot of times they needed, uh, they needed to have some sort of enforcement of what they said. You know, if, if this is the rule, then it's, then it's gotta be, a, you know, then there's a reason why it's a rule. So therefore it's going to be enforced as opposed to the idea of, oh, I guess you just, you'll, you'll do better next time. Let's smack you on the wrist and send you on your way back to class, like you said. And, you know, um, one of the things that, uh, one of the articles that you've written um, in, uh, in your, uh, um, in the Daily Wire is how progressives have ruined school culture and created a mass teacher exodus. And I was wondering if some of this might, you know, if you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, first of all, I don't like the title of that. They kind of made that a little, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely, I'm definitely, you know, more conservative than I am liberal, but I'm not, 
you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a flamethrower. You know, sometimes uh, my friends over there will, you know, they'll take my article and like make it like, like it's a, a real partisan uh, flamethrowing article. Um, but but I, I do I do believe, though, that, you know, one of the things that has happened is that we've embraced this very therapeutic view of education rather than an academic view of education. Um, and I And I think that when you look at schools nowadays, um, and you look at kind of the, the kind of behavior that we tolerate in young people, uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it's really helping anybody. Um, and, and I understand why we're doing it. I'm sensitive to it because people who are in special education programs, uh, people who, are, uh, who come from poverty, people of color, tend to be disproportionately uh, punished uh, in, in, you know, in the last 30 or 40 years. That leads to more suspensions, that leads to less academic performance, and that leads to a kind of inequality. So I, I mean, I understand, I completely am sympathetic to why people think we need to have more of these, what we call restorative practices, restorative justice. Don't be so quick to throw kids out of school. But I do think that the pendulum has gone the opposite direction a little bit. Um, you know, I write about this in Hollowed Out quite a bit, is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, who you're really hurting are the kid, the poor kids who just want to get a good education. Um, you know, 90, you know, 97% of them are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and, and when you have to stop class and say, okay, this kid is angry, they're lashing out, let's stop this, let's stop the instruction, let's stop the academics, and let's focus the class now on the one person who is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, and teachers have reported that 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 these kind of strategies, this kind of environment makes it so you don't have enough learning time. And, and again, you're focusing the whole thing on the worst behaved student in the classroom to the detriment of the other kids who are trying to use the classroom as a kind of slingshot, uh, maybe out of, out of a life that they, they want to do better than. And so, um, you know, I think it really has harmed morale. It has harmed school culture. Um, you know, and I, and I think one of the things is that, you know, culture is is so important. Um, you know, young people call it a vibe, older people call it an ambiance. But I mean, a, a, a place that feels empowering, inspiring, like important things are happening here, inspiring things are happening here. Uh, and, and, and there's a standard that we are going to achieve here. That standard is excellence, it's achievement. Um, you can feel that. And I, I've felt this in a lot of different places that in the last 10 years has kind of gone from that to you know, we're going to work on all these other things, these behavioral problems, these these norms, and we're going to do it under the banner of compassion, Steve. That's the thing that bothers me, is it's not very compassionate to the people who are behaving. It's not very compassionate to the teachers just trying to do their job. It's not very compassionate even to the students who are not dumb. They know, hey, if I can get away with A, B, and C that I couldn't get away with five years ago, I'm going to do it. You know, and here's the thing. What, what, what is the truism about a bad behavior? If bad behavior is allowed to continue, then it's perpetuated and it continues and it's amplified. Um, and the adults, at some point, the adults have to, to, to start adulting. Um, you know, there are, we, the thing about standards is they have to be articulated and they have to be enforced. And I think one of the problems in our society is that adults are embarrassed about being adults. Um, you know, because instead of being their parents and their teachers, we've decided to be their friends instead. And friendship is a, is, is, a, is a relationship predicated on equality, not authority. And I want parents and teachers to be authorities in the life of young people. And I can't believe I have to say this right here, but I'm going to say it. Young people actually need to be raised. They don't know how to do it on their own, right? Their value system comes from somewhere. 
Their behavior comes from somewhere. Their expectations and their hopes and their morality comes from somewhere. And we adults have decided to leave the room. Well, when you have a vacuum in those, those kinds of, uh, kind of you know, behaviors and modeling systems, well, guess what? They become hollowed out. And that's exactly what you're seeing. It's and it's not the kids. I just want to be very clear. I'm not slamming the kids. It's not their fault. None of us, we don't control the time and place where we're born. We adults are the ones who are to blame because we've decided to be cool instead of authoritative. Well, that, that is so powerful. I mean, that's, you know, because that is uh, that is something that, uh, you know, that's that's what I see. I mean, you, you, when you when you don't set boundaries and you think that you're going to, you know, whatever the, the reasoning is, uh, um, as an adult, you've got to be an adult and someone has to be the adult. And if the, the adult is not the adult, the kid figures out. And they start watching people who, you know, get paid $75 million a year to, to do something that, uh, you know, is, is whatever their career field and they have their own choices. And they've been, you know, they don't know what our, the regular world looks like and feels like and stuff like this, or they, or they get their information from whatever people are sharing, whatever stories they're telling on, on social media. You know, uh, one of my favorite things on Instagram used to be that uh, people were, would share all this perfect world stuff. They they drive this car, they, they have this boat, they do. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. And you think that this is, even though you don't know this person, really, you think this is it. Well, that's where they get their, you know, how to behave and such from, you know, it's, it's from that, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, it, it's funny because uh, so much stuff that we've got going on now, you just wonder um, a lot about, uh, you know, sometimes the, is the kid more the adult? Um, Jeremy, this is, this is awesome what you're talking about. And it is so much, so needed the, uh, um, you know, to be able to have these, uh, these conversations where in order to kind of return or at least to make things work where we, you know, work in the classroom where it doesn't chase teachers off. It doesn't, uh, you know, the understanding of what it requires to be a teacher in the classroom. And you have such poignant articles and your books, the same. Awesome catching up with you today. And I, I got to ask you, do you have any new books in the works? Uh, you know what? It's funny you asked. I uh, just uh, signed a contract for a new one, uh, just kind of in the beginning of it. I think it'll be right up your alley. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of the opposite of hollowed out, you know, hollowed out was all about what, what is it that's making our young people miserable? What's hollowing out their souls. Um, this is going to be a book about, uh, essentially a patriotic self-help. Um, this idea that there are these extraordinary Americans in our history who have led very meaningful and purposeful and joyful and, 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 and amazing lives. Um, and, and, and they have life lessons to bequeath to us, to kind of bestow to us. And it, I want to write a book about kind of, you know, what, what these, you know, I want to pinpoint 12 extraordinary Americans and essentially say, what are three life lessons that each of them can give to us today so that we can live better lives? And, you know, it's essentially modeled after kind of the Greek historian Plutarch. Plutarch uh, wrote about, you know, these amazing Greeks and Romans and our founding fathers loved Plutarch. It's like, oh, well, I, I want to be like that Roman. I want to be like that Greek. And I want to write a book so that, you know, people can say, well, I want to be like that American. I want to do what they did. I want to know what they know. Um, and so it's kind of the opposite. I, I, I essentially writing a book of, of self-help using the greatest Americans who've ever lived as our guides. That sounds awesome. I can't wait. Can't wait. And uh, you got to got to shoot me a note as soon as you do so we can. have. Yeah, you I, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll talk to you in a year and a half. Hopefully <laughs> I'm still in the very beginning. So uh, this cool. is the first time I've ever first time I've ever talked about it. So, yeah, you'll have to remind me when we get there. Awesome. Awesome. I will do that. And uh, best of luck as you work on that, because that is right up my alley. I look forward to reading it. The, uh, um, 
another thing I got to ask you here real quick is uh, uh, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them as well as uh, I know you're a keynote speaker and you do, you do lots of talks and stuff like this. How would they engage you for talking if they wanted to for their organization? Uh, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Adams six um, at J E R E M Y A D A M S six. Uh, and uh, as far as speaking goes, uh, my my professional development um, publisher is Solution Tree, and just you know Google Solution Tree Jeremy Adams, and you can find me for any kind of uh, keynote speaking or professional development. I'm doing a fair amount of that. Again, I'm still a full time teacher, so I got to have to navigate the two. Um, but uh, yeah, please contact me. Uh, I love talking to teachers, love speaking, and um, and that's it. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's been cool talking with you, Jeremy, and, and, and getting caught up. And uh, I got one last question for you, and it goes like this. If you were to give advice to a new teacher in working with students this, this school year, what is something you, you'd make sure you shared? Uh, keep experimenting. Uh, you're going to have a lot of bad days. Um, the kids are trying to be reacclimated to normal. You're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, understand that the best teachers, the, the best teachers fail as much as anybody else do, does. It's how they react to that failure that makes them great. Uh, and that is kind of the spirit of we're going to keep going. We're going to if that didn't work, if A didn't work, we'll do B. If B doesn't work, we'll try C. Make sure you just keep at it because you're changing something doesn't mean you're failing at it. Awesome advice. Uh, Jeremy, looking forward to your next article and book. Um, what's want to remind everybody that he writes for Quillet and uh, I'll put a um, show notes in the show notes. I'll put uh, links to that and, and I'll put information about how you can get in touch with him as well as uh, links to his, his uh, four books. And everyone, make sure that you get a copy of Hollowed Out. Um, also want to remind you that, uh, um, before I say this, everyone, make sure that you get a copy of Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. And uh, also remember that he's now, uh, Jeremy's now a writer for uh, thedailywire.com as well. So we'll put links for those articles there. Um, Jeremy, awesome catching up. Wishing the best in all that you do. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.